Good morning. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 17. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And the second reading is taken from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 28, verses 23 to 31. They, as in the Jewish leaders, arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even large, larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God. And from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to live after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes he hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Well, good morning again, and thank you, Cam, for the invitation to come and open God's Word. It's wonderful to be here with you. We've been, because our family is connected at CLG, we've been following how things have been going here for some time. Really exciting to be here with the family this morning and to open up God's Word. And what a great topic it is, God's big picture. So uh, let's, let's talk to God and ask Him to work in our hearts individually, but also as a church now as we reflect on His Word. Our Lord God, we thank you that your word gives us life. You created us with your word and you redeem us 
and sustain us by your word. And so we pray now that you would enlighten us by your word and draw us closer and closer to you and to your purposes. Amen. Well, the vision statement of CMS, the Church Missionary Society, it's plastered on all of our banners here, a world that knows Jesus. What do you reckon? That's quite bold, don't you think? When you think about it, Let's have a think about that for a few moments. What would we need to do to see a world that knows Jesus? How would you evangelize the whole world? Now, some of you may be thinking the preacher has lost the plot. Are you kidding? What, what world are you thinking of evangelizing? Uh, you may even be hearing this and saying, that's offensive to evangelize the whole world. But what about Jesus? What does he say about world evangelization? Just one statement from him from Matthew 24, 14. He says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. It's a word of prophecy from Jesus. He's saying the whole world will be evangelized, and only then will I return. So world evangelization first, then the end of the world, as we know it. Now, some people misinterpret this verse and they say, see, we've been given a job to do and until we do it, Jesus won't return. So get on with it or else you are just delaying Christ's return. There's a bit of a guilt trip there, isn't it? There's a real risk when we come across a verse like this or when we use a, a slogan like <clears throat> a world that knows Jesus a risk that we see this as our mission that God is kind of on board with, we really hope he is, rather than God's own mission. You see, I don't think it depends on us, but it will involve us if we will participate. And so that's our question this morning. Will we participate? Do we want Jesus proclaimed to the whole world? Now, I understand that Matt Lehman uh, referred to the Acts verse that we had read, that, that verse towards the end of um, Acts 28, uh, here on the first sermon uh, that we had here at Tonsley. And just to refresh your minds, um, the book of Acts, which is, I guess, the very beginning of God's, um, of the mission of the gospel of Christ. Of course, the mission has been going for a long time before that, but the beginning of the mission, Paul's under arrest and then there's these Jewish leaders come and visit him, and he tells them this incredibly challenging statement. He says, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and they will listen. So right here at the beginning of, of world gospel mission is another prophecy. The message of, of Jesus starts with the Jews, but it will be sent to non-Jews. Even though it's a message with Jewish origins, non-Jews, like us, we will listen, won't we? Although, of course, there is another verse in there that says some people will be, they just will never listen. So I guess the question is, at the start of the mission, you get this, these proclamations that the, the gospel, the Gentiles will listen to the gospel. Do they? Do we? Will the gospel of the kingdom be preached in the world as a testimony? Will there ever be world evangelization? So that's what I want to look at this morning for a few more minutes. Where are we in all of this? You know, where are we up to in God's mission? 
And I'm going to ask that question in three ways. Where are we up to in the Bible's picture? Where are we up to in world history? And then where are we up to as a church at the beginning of our journey here at Trinity Church, Tonsley? What does it look like for us to be seeking a world that knows Jesus? So firstly, the Bible, then world history, then our church. Where are we up to in the Bible's picture? We saw where mission starts in Acts. We heard what Jesus said. Where is it heading? And so we go to the Revelation verse, which is the other end, isn't it? It's John's vision of the end. And he says, after this, Revelation 7 verse 9, he's seen other parts of his vision before this. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude of people that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. Imagine it. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's a picture of the future, and it has happened. The prediction is that all of this that Jesus and Paul have said has happened world of evangelization has happened. The gospel was preached in all the world because we can see it in this gathering. So what does this picture of the end tell us about where we are now in between Acts and Revelation? What do we see? What, what must, where are we now when we take account of these two bookends? So firstly, we see that a multitude of people have heard the gospel. You remember that there was an elder in in the story, and the elder asks John, who are these people in white robes, and where did they come from? And John says, well, I would have thought you would have known that one, and so he says, so, sir, please tell me, and the elder says, okay, they are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, or as one translation puts it, the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, since when do you wash robes in blood and they come out white? This is not cleaning tips. This is the cleansing from guilt that you receive as a result of Jesus' death, if you trust him. Only if you trust him. Wash your heart in Jesus' blood and God will see it as perfectly clean. Wash your mind in Jesus' blood, and God will see it as perfectly pure. Wash your whole being in Jesus' blood. Now, perhaps you feel like this is a bit morbid, uh, and maybe you feel like depending on a brutal death for your cleansing is an awful thought. Well, in some ways, it's, it's meant to be awful, isn't it? It is awful. What about that idea of depending on another person to make me innocent? I'm not that bad, am I? The gospel tells us that the only reason that Jesus shed his blood was for human sin. I mean, can you think of any other reason why God would take flesh and then allow himself to be brutally and humiliatingly murdered in front of the whole city? Why, what on earth is Jesus doing on that cross? It's extraordinary. Was it a plan gone wrong? No. 
It might not have been the plan that we would have made, but Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. He knew where, we, where he was going. He says to Peter, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. So unpleasant, maybe. But if we are drenched in his blood, we are cleansed before God, and that is great news, brothers and sisters. So we know this multitude in Revelation 7 has, been, has heard the gospel of Jesus because they've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Secondly, this multitude is made up of people from every nation, tribe, people group, and language. You don't have to be white and wealthy, like most of us, to be Christian. Quite the contrary. Christ's people are a multicultural people, much more multicultural than any church that you or I have ever visited. And how did they come as a multitude? How did they come to be cleansed by Jesus' death? Well, we've already heard that they've, they've heard that message because there is no other way to be cleansed and included by, than by hearing the message. That's how you are cleansed. You hear that Jesus is your only hope of reconciliation to God and, and you believe it. You entrust your well-being before God into Jesus' hands and what he did. And that's what it is to be reconciled to God. And if you haven't believed that message yet, it's not too late. Christianity is not a teaching program about being righteous that enables you to work out how to be righteous. It's a message that you either accept or reject you take that picture of Jesus' blood and you say, yes, Jesus, make me right with God. Or you say, no thanks, I'll take my chances. And since it's a message, it's something, what do we need to do with a message? We need to tell it to people. And that's where missionaries come in. But, I want, but it's really important to notice here the multicultural nature of this. How does the message go to all the nations? Does it just kind of drift out? and kind of disseminate across cultures. That's not how culture works. Culture is not a simple thing. The message has to go cross-cultural, but it doesn't go cross-cultural by accident. It doesn't just drift across cultures. Unless there is an intention, then what we do is we generally stay in our comfort zones, and our comfort zones are our cultural comfort zones. We, don't, we find it very hard to understand other cultures. At best, we see them as a novelty. We'd like to know what their food is like, so maybe we can open an Aussie version of their restaurant somewhere and go and see, you know, dip into their culture a little bit. But at worst, you know, we really don't like other cultures. We find it hard work. We don't find it easy to spend time with, with people who think differently and talk differently and live differently. If this picture of the multicultural gathering tells us anything, it tells us that throughout the history of the church, missionaries were sent across cultures, cross-cultural gospel workers. For this future picture to become a reality, missionaries need to go to other countries, to cross cultures, to learn languages, and to love people who are different. You know, the nations are not going to come to us I know there is a small, tiny proportion of people, the drop in the bucket, who will come, but they're often very specific, like they're often quite wealthy, they're students coming to, to, um, to study, it's a tiny little drop in the bucket, but what about the bucket? The bucket is not coming to us. And it's actually quite rare for 
students who come here to get all fired up and go back home as evangelists, unless they're properly prepared for it. People in other countries are not going to hear the message on the internet. You might be thinking, oh, but, but just, just Google, um, how can I be saved? Can't be much harder than that. But what language are you going to Google that in? In most languages, you Google that and you'll get nothing. We need to go to them and stay for a long time. Long enough for locals in that country to believe the message and for their own indigenous church to become capable of sharing the message among one another and then for that church to grow. So this picture of the multitude is so important for us. It tells us that God sends missionaries. You know, missionary, it's a bit of an old-fashioned term. It just means sent ones, but these people are sent across cultures. Yes, we're all involved in mission to our friends and family and local community in the sense that we send one another out, but mission is fundamentally about sending to other communities. The church must send missionaries cross-culturally if it is going to participate in God's program. Global mission is not an add-on. It is the center of what God is doing. Remember what Jesus said, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So we're in the middle of the Bible's picture, aren't we? Of that New Testament picture. The church has sent out some missionaries, but there are still many, many nations, tribes, people, groups, and languages who would not yet be represented in that gathering. And so now is the time for sending missionaries, which brings us to questions two and three, which we'll deal with more quickly. Question two, where are we up to in world history? So we've looked at the Bible picture. Secondly, where are we up to in world history? So we're going to do a quick survey of 2,000 years. Because numbers can tell us a powerful story. You may want to jot some of these down. I'm getting my stats from The Future of the Global Church. It's a book by Patrick Johnston. He's the guy behind the Operation World resource by which you can pray for every nation in the world each year. In Acts chapter 1, there are 120 believers. That's the starting point. By Acts 4, there are 5,000 believers. By the end of the first century, there may have been as many as 1.4 million Christians. Not bad for 60 years or so, is it? It's about 0.8% of the world's population. I'm going to trace those percentages. 0.8 is the end of the first century. By the year 200, the end of the second century, it was 4.7% of the world's population. That's a lot of missionary activity in a hundred years, isn't it? That's a lot of cultures crossed. It didn't just drift out from Jerusalem. By the year 300, 7.5% of the world's population confessed Christ. So 0.8, 4.7, 7.5. During the next century, the Roman Emperor, Constantine, became a Christian. It was quite a complex period. By, By the year 400... 13.4% of the world's population was Christian. The 5th century, masses of missionary activity. By 500, 19.9%. A smidge under 1.5 people on earth, one, one in five people on the earth, sorry, were Christian. Let's pause, you know, were they all mature disciples? I wonder if you're thinking that question. 
we don't know. I, I, I doubt it. In our own country, just because 60% of people put Christian on the census doesn't mean they have saving faith or whatever that figure has slumped to these days. But what it does mean is that here in Australia, the gospel has been preached extensively, doesn't it? Otherwise, you just don't get those kind of numbers. Most of Australia's people groups are called reached people groups because they're only one degree of separation. They're only one person away from, well, in, not in every single place, but in most of our communities, most of our people groups, not far from actually being able to find the gospel. We're in a gospel-rich culture, not a gospel-poor culture. And remember that Jesus didn't say that the whole world would be Christian. He said that the message would go to the whole world. They'll know him, but maybe not as Lord. How extraordinary is it that by 600, 21.5% of people were calling themselves Christian? Then over the next 300 years or so, the number of Christians in the world stays about the same, about 40 million. But population growth is massive during that time, plus this is the era of the growth of Islam. In the 13th century, there is another big uptick in the percentage of Christians. By 1300, the world is 24% Christian. And then over the next five centuries, it's down and up and down a bit until the incredible, I said that quite loud, didn't I? The incredible 19th century. It really was incredible. Massive explosion in mission activity during the 1800s. In the year 1800, just a few hundred Protestant missionaries were on the field. By 1900, 45,000 Protestant missionaries were on the field. And there were multiple spiritual awakenings around the world. By 1900, Christianity represented 34.4% of the world's population, one in three people. So what was going to come next? What was the 20th century going to bring? A friend recently forwarded me a great article uh, that you can find on the Gospel Coalition website by a guy called Douglas A. Sweeney. The article is called, When Did Evangelicals Stop Caring About Missions? Oops. When did evangelicals stop caring about missions? It's a confronting title, isn't it? But Sweeney points to the world being poised at the beginning of the 20th century for an incredible Christian century. It was going to be a golden age of Christianity in the world. But what happened? Well, two devastating world wars, dozens of genocides, massive population growth in particular parts of the world, an increase of Islam in Asia and Africa, along with, as we know, a devastating decline in Christian commitment in Europe, followed by the rest of the West. Between 1900 and 2000, in the Northern Hemisphere, we're just taking half, half the world now, Christianity went from representing 82% of the population to 41% in 100 years. All of this, with, along with nearly 45 million martyrs in the 20th century, mostly at the hands of atheist secularists. 
So what's happening? Is Jesus' plan being walked back before it's finished? Well, no. Because if you Google what's the percentage of world Christians today, it's still about 31 to 32%. So why hasn't it dropped? Well, because of the rest of the world, the global south in particular, several particularly highly populated areas, regions in what's known as the two-thirds world, especially in Asia, Africa, and South America. In these regions, Christian faith grew from nearly 18% of the population in 1900 to 59% in the year 2000. So what's happened in the 20th century? A massive growth in the church in many of the poorest parts of the world. And in many ways, that has offset the massive exodus from the church, from the Christian faith in the West. Where does this leave us? Well, surely, what, what, what is the 21st century going to look like? Surely it's a great time to engage in cross-cultural discipleship and evangelism. What is God doing in the world? Let's get on board with it. Surely we in the West will see the huge opportunities for evangelism and discipleship in parts of the world that have not yet been touched or have only just been touched by Christianity. Surely we'll share our resources. We have a massive heritage of English language theological resources, for example. And we can share those theological resources with the church that is growing in some parts of the world, growing so fast that it can't keep up with itself. Of course, these resources have to be translated, and, they, and the people who take them have to go and enculturate themselves, otherwise it's meaningless to a growing church in Asia or Africa. Now, a cynic may say, well, you know, surely we shouldn't be abandoning the West. What about our friends and neighbours here? Do we just give up and focus everything on the 1040 window, that's the, the next big frontier for mission, they call it. It's the peoples living between 10 and 40 degrees above the equator, running from Africa, North Africa, right across the Middle East, South Asia, you know, Asia, the whole works. Do we just sort of give up on the West? Of course we don't do that. Our church must keep witnessing in Australia. The mission doesn't change here at all. But the heavenly picture is about crossing cultures. It's about sending missionaries. Now is the time for sending missionaries. The harvest is ripe. So ask the Lord of the harvest, Jesus tells us, to send out workers into the harvest. Which brings us to our concluding question. We've looked at where are we up to in the Bible, where are we up to in history. So what about where are we up to as a church? Well, it's pretty brand new, aren't we? Although... I guess many of us have been involved in churches for a while, but this is a great opportunity at the beginning of our life here at Trinity Church Tonsley to be, to be asking this question, where do, we, where do we want to go in terms of our engagement with Global Mission? I'm so encouraged that you are partnering as a church with the Purdies. What does that look like for you personally? You've got a, uh, the card here, you can tear off the, the front bit should be pretty easy to tear off. Let's check. Yeah, there, see, it works. Um, you can just stick that on the fridge and they can keep reminding you if you haven't partnered with them. Alternately, you could tear off the back half and just put that on your fridge too, the contact detail support. No, just tear off the photo 
And yeah, so what, what about you though? Are you engaged in the mission of God to the nations? Do you see that vision in Revelation 7? You say, yeah, yeah, that's the church. That's the same church we're part of. You know, you can't see their faces, but you know they're, they're people like us. And you know that they've only got there around the throne because of the work God has been doing through missionaries. The church is setting apart missionaries, training them and sending them and then partnering with them to make sure they are well supported in their vital contribution to Christ's agenda. So CMS talks about pray, care, give, go. Have you heard of that? Pray, care, give, go. The Bible wants us to be involved in mission, and, and that's what it means. What that means is partnership. And so these words help us to think about how to partner in mission. Pray for missionaries, care for missionaries, give for missionaries, and go, put your hand up, to be a missionary. So just to wrap things up for this morning, I do want to say a few things about each of those four. Firstly, pray. Do you pray for missionaries? Now, obviously, we pray for it up from the platform, but what about in your own personal devotions? Asking God to let his kingdom come, to send out more workers into the harvest, to flourish the work of missionaries. You may not know Maggie Cruz, for example, but she was the one that sprang to mind when I was writing this, witnessing to girls who have been rescued from exploitation in Cambodia, girls who need to hear that Christ is really their great rescuer. And that's what Maggie and her team are doing every day, but the engine room for what happens in Maggie's ministry is your prayer, the prayer of her partner churches. CMS SANT recorded five episodes of the Heart of Mission podcast during February this year when we had to cancel our conference. I don't know if any of you had the opportunity to listen to that, but in the middle of episode two, Maggie tells us a whole list of answered prayers. You should go and have a listen to it because it's miraculous, the things that have been happening around her in answer to our prayers. And are you praying for Malcolm and Ainsley? It's been a massive hassle, this visa thing. They've got a big culture shift ahead. They've got lots of language learning. They've got four kids. They're young. <laughs> you know, there's a lot to pray for. Pray that they'd be well set up so that they can get involved in training pastors and preparing them for a lifetime of faithful gospel ministry across Chile and other parts of South America. You know how important it is for churches to have leaders? I mean, we just take it for granted because we've just got them popping up everywhere here. But it's not the same in every part of the world. You do pray for the kingdom of God, don't you? Now, I'm going to be a little bit impolite here. I don't know how you can say you're committed to the kingdom of God unless you're praying for the kingdom of God. You know, we need to stop praying that God will make our lives more comfortable. You know, Lord, I pray that I have a really, well, help me to get over this cold. You know, I mean, sure, there's time for praying for healing, for sure. You know, I pray that I have a really great weekend this weekend. You know, <laughs> sure, pray it. But, you know, Switch from praying about trying to make your life comfortable and start praying for the things God actually cares about. Well, he does care about your comfort, but he actually wants very often to take you through the challenges of life so that you will fix your eyes on what he's actually doing. That's what he really wants for his church and for the people in his church. So pray that Christ would be known in all the earth. Secondly, care. 
Some of you may have been back at CLG um, when I interviewed NNR uh, at the end of their 11 years overseas in a secure location. And I asked them how we as a church could partner with the Purdies because we're about to, you know, they were retiring, but we were getting new missionaries. What should we do? How should we do this well? And I said, what, what can we do? And they, I was thinking they're going to say, well, pray lots, uh, give generously. But you know what they said? Some of you will remember. Love them. Care about them. Because, you know, what we're really doing with partnership is building relationships with missionaries. Relationships of love, because mission overseas is really hard. Missionaries' lives are, are turned upside down by crossing cultures. They need our love. For us not just to switch off and say, oh, they're gone, doesn't matter. They'll come back in three years' time and then we can say hello again. So how can you show love and care to the Purdies in this tricky time? Well, you can start by subscribing to their partnership updates and then every month you'll get an update. It's actually really not that hard to sign up. And read those updates and email them back, just hit reply. And uh, even if it's just one or two sentences of encouragement, you know, I really like what you said about this, I will keep praying for that. You know, they may not always answer back, but they will really benefit from your care for what they're doing. Build that relationship with them. And, you know, maybe take an interest in Chile as well and the culture of that country. Look it up in the Operation World phone app before you pray for them. It's a really helpful app. Check out the stats on Chile. Check out some of the country prayer points and, and love them through that. Thirdly, give. I was talking to a friend recently who works with Christian ministry fundraising. And she actually really loves it. She's energized by this work. She sees it as a tangible expression of people's faith. You want to test it? If people really believe in gospel ministry, then prove it. Giving really puts it to the test, doesn't it? In the West, we might be time poor. We are. We are. We're all time poor. But we're not money poor. Sure, groceries, stupidly expensive big election issue apparently is, you know, cost of living, I know. But if we've got money in our bank accounts, then we've got money. Um, this friend of mine, her comment to me was, why do we keep saying nothing in my hand I bring? And we, you know, we're reflecting, actually, I think it comes from that hymn, Rock of Ages, you know the one? Simply to the cross I cling. And it's actually a really helpful message about not pretending that you're righteous on the basis of anything else. You don't come to him on your own righteousness. But in some ways, it's become a bit of a mantra that we don't have obligations as we follow Christ, the Lord of the universe, who demands that we give him everything. We had a bit of a think about it. None of us, neither of us could think of a place in the Bible where it says, come to God empty-handed. In fact, it says the exact opposite. I, I was, just as I was writing this sermon, I went on a, on a walk and I was listening to Exodus 34, as you do, and it popped up. Chapter, verse 19, God says in the law, no one is to appear before me empty-handed. And a few verses down, 
Exodus 34, verse 26. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Sending missionaries is expensive. You know, maybe we could save some money. We could, you know, cut back on caring for them. You know, you can feed two of your children purdies. We don't want to do that, though. Our, our, our missionary standard of living is already pretty modest compared with many of us. The Purdies are 85% funded at the moment. It's really exciting. Some of you will have been following this over the last three, four months. We were 30% funded a few months back, then 70. Now we're up to 85, which is very exciting. But in the end, if we don't get to 100, they need to be funded from elsewhere. So there's still a very significant need uh, for donations, regular giving to get them fully paid for. Are you putting your finances to work? I'm not talking about putting them to work in the way you hear on the, on the news or in the ads or whatever, which is, you know, put your money to work to make more money. I mean putting it to work for the kingdom of Jesus. Giving to your local church to sustain the ministry here. Giving to the poor because that's, that's our job. Who else is going to do it? can't just always depend on the government to do it. And giving to global mission, to the sending of missionaries across cultures to participate in Jesus' glorious plan. Fourthly, go. Now, not a lot of people are lining up to go on mission. At least not with me. I mean, I've got a great bunch of names uh, in the pipeline, but it's not, a, it's not a lot of names. What about this church? Have a look around. Go on, have a look. Hmm. Dob in a mate. <laughs> Who could we send? Awkward silence. I'll move on, I'll move on. Um, if someone from Trinity Church Tonsley goes overseas... They'll need partners here as well. So you can't, we kind of got to do this go thing together as well. It's not, just an ins, it's not just about one person putting their hand up and then disappearing. Who could we set apart and support? Could this be a prayer goal over the next 12 months? That God might lay it on our hearts, who might go? And if you're the one to go, that he might lay it on your heart as well, and that you might be bold enough to put up your hand. And if you're not sure, I'm happy to catch up with you. Just get in touch. I'm not going to put pressure on anyone. I'm not going to send anybody overseas who's not, you know, really right to go overseas. But if God wills it, he will enable it. After all, global mission is his thing. And so maybe that's a good place for us to finish. Is global mission a hobby of God's? Oh, yes, I love a good missionary, you know, wind down in the evenings. Let's send a few missionaries. Or is it his full-time job? Maybe it's even more than that. Because God doesn't sleep. It's his entire agenda. Mission is everything to God. It's there from the beginning of the Bible. Kind of really gets ramped up when Jesus is sent as the, the answer to the promises. But we're right in the middle of this moment of mission. It's the extension of God's love and mercy. 
It's the extension of his wisdom and his righteousness to the nations. And it's his glorious vision for the human race and for all creation. We believe this. This fires us up, doesn't it? And so let's pray. Our Father in heaven, let your kingdom come. We pray that you would please engage us with your global mission more and more daily. We pray that you would please challenge each of us individually and as a church to be praying regularly and from the heart for the details of of the Purdy's situation right through to the big picture of South American Christianity. Lord, we pray that you would give us love in our hearts for the outsider, for people who are different from us, for the missionaries who are out of our sight. Help us to care for them. Lord, give us generosity. Help us to hold loosely to our funds, not to be afraid to spend money on mission. And Lord, would you please lay it on our hearts who might go to serve you cross-culturally in partnership with this church. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.